Welcome to CB Talks, a podcast from Silvercloud by Anwell, a leading digital mental health platform specializing in the delivery of evidence-based care. I'm Dr. Daniel Duffy. I'm a digital health scientist, and in this series, I explore the science of digital mental health with practitioners and mental health advocates. In today's episode, I'm exploring the accessibility of digital mental health solutions, especially in relation to disadvantaged communities. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, Digital services accelerated in popularity, and this has definitely been the case with digitally-based mental health services. With my guest today, I explore the hybrid models of care which have embedded digital services within traditional care pathways. My guest, Dr. Austin O'Carroll, is a GP based in Dublin and founder of numerous primary care initiatives for homeless, disadvantaged and marginalised communities in Ireland. We explore how his work has ensured that for those in the community who need support, they actually receive it. So Austin, thank you very much for joining us. I know just from speaking to others and even from seeing the work you've done with Silvercloud, Austin, I know that there's a whole wealth of experience behind you and it's so, so rich. And I really just want to start from the start, I guess, talking about your journey to where you got to today. And you've done a whole bunch of work for not just the communities in Dublin, the underserved communities in Dublin, but even now across the country. So I'd love for you to take us through it, if that's okay. Yeah, that'd be delighted to my journey probably started back in 1980 when I was in college and uh, I first started working actually with the Vincent de Paul. I'm actually um, agnostic myself, but I worked at the Vincent de Paul in college extensively and I ended up getting very involved in the inner city. And I worked mm-hmm. a lot with children in the inner city. I used to organize youth clubs and bringing kids out on hikes uh, from Sean McDermott Street, from Pierce Street and also from Ballyfermot. And I, I grew to love the inner city. I also used to visit old folk as as, as, as we do and also worked with people with disabilities yeah. then. So um, that really exposed me to the life of people in the inner city and the the wit and the humour and the warmth and also the grit because even then you could see they had to deal a lot with poverty. Yeah. So um, that's where the journey started. And I worked there for several years and uh, eventually I moved on and... Uh, I suppose the next part of my journey took when I became um, a member. I joined a organization for the rights of people with disabilities called the Forum of People with Disabilities. And it was interesting then because obviously in the Vincent de Paul, an organization I have great admiration for, but it's a charitable approach. And uh, mm-hmm. I have founded several charities and I work with people at charities and I have great, great respect, huge respect for the people working in charities. They do fantastic work. But the philosophy of charity is ultimately a philosophy where it's I'm helping you because you're less well off than yeah. me. So it's a, it, it, it maintains a power imbalance. Uh, whereas the philosophy of the disability rights was about um, the rights of people. And that really honed me, my philosophy towards enforcing the rights of people who live in areas of deprivation to having access to education, to employment, and obviously to health. So when I first became a GP in the inner city, I I got a practice in the inner city, Dublin, um, in 1997. And uh, um, I mean, it was a shock. I hadn't been prepared for it because I arrived in to find I was working for a community who had been devastated by several generations of poverty, but in particular by the issue of drug addiction and uh, I had never seen so many families who'd lost several members to young children uh, all died due to drug addiction 
um, wow. uh, and mothers coming in um, who grieving their, their children, um, going to at least one young person's funeral a month. The way I'm kind of going to angle this, Austin, is I'd love to, you know, talk more, talk about like where you've come from and how you let, how it's led you to this point. And I suppose, you know, I would almost say that you've devoted your life to inner city Dublin. And I mean, that even then is inspiring just for, not for me to hear, but also for, you know, people to know that Silvercloud and Amwell are working with people like you because you are, you effectively just positioned yourself there from your description as a community leader. And I mean, I'd love to, even to now, like talking, going from that experience from, you know, I've, you know, done a little bit of history researching and uh, I I am only in my thirties. So even knowing how Dublin was decimated in the 70s, the 80s and 90s through so many different types of crime epidemics, through the introduction of heroin, everything like that, the city centre was really transformed and not for the not for the best yeah. of reasons, right? Even when you think about gentrification and stuff like that. Yeah. So thinking about your day-to-day practice, you know, what is it that you see? And even in contrast to previous, when you were, you know, yeah. going to treat that person for hepatitis C and to now. I suppose just to give you a very quick synopsis of what happened to me when I started, because it's relevant to my day-to-day practice. Yes, please. I mean, I worked in inner city Dublin and very involved with that. But then around 1998, with the influx of migrants, um, I get very involved with working with migrants and ended up working mm-hmm. in a particular um, facility called the Parnell West Hotel for several years, providing services to migrants. And then from that, I got involved in working with homeless people and I set up a clinic with a nurse, Denise Mahoney, who asked me to set up a clinic. And... Uh, then that went on to develop several clinics. In the end, we found a safety net. And now there are multiple clinics all over Dublin, in reach and drop-in clinics, which we founded in Granby, Merchants Quay, the Capitan Centre, uh, into a number of hostels. And we also founded a mobile health unit, a mobile health and screening unit for homeless people. And then a methadone, opiate substitution treatment uh, programme for methadone wow. people, as well as other addictions such as um, benzodiazepine and and um, alcohol. So we developed this wide array of services. I would say probably Dublin uh, has probably one of the top two cities in the world, I'd say, for the array of services the HSE has helped us develop. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a real good story in terms of the health services, not a good story in terms that we have so many homeless people to serve. We then of got course. involved in providing services to migrants, including the Roma and um, and also non-documented migrants. So we developed all these services, and then I decided I'd need a GPs to work. So I found a GP training scheme to train GPs to work in areas of deprivation mm-hmm. and with marginalised groups. So it was the first in the kindness were in the world, and since then there's been fourteen others or twelve others founded in the UK, um, and uh, that's been very successful in getting GPs to work with marginalised groups and in inner city. And then I founded another charity which develops GP practice in areas of deprivation where there are no GP practices. So. Take, for example, um, Summer Hill is an area where there's very few GPs and we set up a GP practice mm-hmm. there. West Finglas has a large population and there's no GP in the area, so we're setting up a GP practice there. Do you get time to do you get time to have a little nap every now and then? Or I yeah, mean time, I, I founded this, I founded that. That's a uh, gosh. Do you do you do you get an hour to yourself on a Sunday for a quick cup of tea yeah. and then you meet yourself on the way back out the door? Well, I've always liked variety. In fact, uh, I've always liked a bit of chaos. They call me Dr. Chaos in the practice because uh, I like the chaos. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, I enjoy it. And uh, so it's, I also have an amazing group of people working with me. I've built up a, a really amazing team. So, you know, it's a huge effort amongst a group of it, a large group of us. I mean, well, I may have started things to get things going and keep them going depends a lot of really dedicated people. So I have a huge, 
group of people working with me. So that leads to me in my day to day is that I work now, for example, I just come from a clinic in homelessness last morning, which was really busy. And uh, so I do that on Tuesday and Wednesday mornings. Then in the afternoons, um, I do two jobs. I work for the HSE, um, developing this uh, service to help review debts of people in homelessness, find out could we have improved services that may have prevented such debts. And then I'm also, um, on Thursdays, I'm working in the GP training scheme, training GPs to recognize the deprivation. And I've taken my Mondays and Tuesdays off to write a book as well. So that's the fun part. I, I think you kind of, you, with everything so far that you've described, I think you at least deserve to do something for yourself, for sure. <laughs> so I'm having a bit of fun. So that's my day-to-day work. So I guess everything you've just said, you know, from addictions to homelessness to poverty, you know, people can easily jump to the, you know, the physical effects of addiction. But to me and to the podcast that you're on, that's also screams the comorbidity with mental health issues. Yeah. So what do those presentations look like for this throughout your career? What have they looked like and what do they look like on your day to day? Well, I think to me is, you know, there's a new um, way of thinking about this, which I, I think is wonderful. It's the idea of looking at adverse childhood experiences or childhood trauma. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you see the families where they come from, where they've been highly stressed, and then the children end up in a highly stressed environment where people lose the cool and they don't know how to manage the children. They enforce the rules with, you know, shouting. Um, it isn't that they don't love their children, but they just haven't got the skills to manage them or the resources. Yeah. And then you end up with a huge amount of trauma with physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, and parents who have addictions themselves. And then, of course, that leads to intergenerational uh, propagation and trauma. So, I mean, this is what we've always known is that if you come up from a messed up background, you end up with a messed up life. But this is putting a science on it. And they found that if you have a history of trauma, that not only are you more likely to end up involved in crime, end up become either a victim or a a, a propagator of violence, or a person who uses drugs, or a person who's homeless, also, you live your lifespan is twenty years less. You have a much higher rate of physical disease and a much higher rate of mental illness. So, you know, the, we work in an area in our city, Dublin, uh, where people are have lower life expectancies because of health mm-hmm. inequalities, because of childhood trauma. They have much higher rates of physical illness and much higher rates of mental illness. And there's a well-known law called Tudor Hart's inverse care law that states. The um, the need for services is inversely proportional to the provision of services, or in other words, those most need of services are least likely to get them, and it's so true um, in terms of mental health services, in terms of counselling services, and uh, GPs. There's less GPs in areas of deprivation. Um, obviously, people in areas of deprivation can't access private medicine. So that's what basically I've been devoting my career to is to try and address access to quality healthcare for people in these areas to somehow start reversing these inequalities or inequities Mm. because they're unjust inequalities. And And I suppose, Austin, just on that point there, you know, even thinking of therapy and therapy provision in general, and even in research, it's usually just middle and upper class kind of cross-section of people those who are educated and you even see that reflected as well in research trials across the whole world. And I think it's really interesting, you know, the way we have uh, free mental health care in in regards to, uh, not free mental health care, just free health care in regards to medical card provision. So do you think that it's just enough 
to go with the medical card? Do you think that that's enough? Or is there a need for more bespoke outreach to these sorts of communities to enable care, even physical health care? I think, you know, you have to take a social determinant approach that, you know, if you want mm-hmm. to really address health care, I mean, first of all, is you need to give them at least the same level of health care. Uh, I always maintain, as you say, you know, if you set the gold standard at the bottom, you can be guaranteed everyone above that will have it. The middle class and upper class will have it. <laughs> and uh, at the moment, they don't have the gold standard. They, they should have more health service than they've less. So um, I do think we need to be redressing that. But also to address health, it's not just enough about healthcare. We need to address the lack of involvement in education, the lack of involvement mm-hmm. in third level education, the lower unemployment rates, um, the lower poverty rates. So we need to you know, have a concerted effort on all fronts. I mean, there's plenty of evidence to show that inequality itself determines uh, health. So, you know, it isn't just putting doctors in there. We have to address the, those determinants. Like, for example, I trained as a counsellor, believe it or not, um, with relationship counselling back in the 90s. When I got into practice, I was all eager to promote counselling. And I'd often refer people to counselling services that I worked with, which were free. So, you know, you've got free healthcare, free counselling care. Mm-hmm. But they were based in off Grafton Street or in Fitzwilliam Square or Southside Dublin. And that's, I won't say it's enemy territory, but it's not, it's different territory. <laughs> <laughs> different territory i guess for any of those listening who may not be familiar with the geography of dublin so give me a give me an example of some of the differences between for example inner city dublin and fitzwilliam square so i mean inner city dublin you know people in in the inner city don't tend to 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 go out that much outside their area and counseling services tend to be what we call the sunny south side which is the middle class area of dublin um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, for example, Grafton Street, which is the high-end shopping street in Dublin. And um, um, my clients are less like, much less likely, more likely to go to different streets. So they don't feel comfortable going to those areas. I actually interestingly found, I managed to get a counsellor to volunteer to work in my practice. And I had, they had no problem attending the counsellor once they was in their area and territory. So it wasn't that they wouldn't use counselling services. It's just... It's, you know, the provision of services is mainly located in middle class areas. So, um, uh, so that really was, a, you know, um, a light bulb moment for me. So now I have a counselor working in my homeless services um, and, uh, you know, we have access to, to, to counseling through primary care, but it's, it's, it's difficult to access. So I think the options offered where we can do telephone counseling really expands the options we may have in providing um this type of care to people who would normally not have availed of it. Of course. And I think, you know, it's interesting, mental health kind of puts the responsibility on the individual, really. And there are some approaches that do sort of um, go against that, you know, dominant kind of uh, philosophy in mental health treatments. But it really is the case that society has to be set up in order for everybody to succeed. Going back to what you're talking about, about equality and equity. And I suppose that brings me on to digital. What I'm hearing from your story so far is that you meet people where they are. And when you meet people where they are, that brings the most effective treatment. So I guess that's the ethos behind digital in a sense, although I don't necessarily think we may have, uh, we're sticking to it. And sometimes perhaps digital interventions and companies behind them, they do tend to fudge that line a little bit in regards to, you know, we increase access, but do we really increase access or are we seeing much of the same? But 
how your interactions with digital so far, I suppose, we'll talk about digital CBT and everything like that, but I suppose digital touches more than just therapy. It even touches like the digitization of your day-to-day as a GP or as, you know, as a surgeon in a hospital. So what's been your interactions with digital so far in the health service? So the health service, obviously during COVID, we use digital services quite a lot and we use a lot more um, telephone and video calls. Um, mm-hmm. and I do think, you know, it's interesting. When I first started, we used telephone calls a lot with, with patients. But then with increasing fear of litigation, people moved away from telephone calls. So it was really interesting, like going backwards in time. Um, yeah. But then they, obviously the added dimension of video makes a huge difference. So um, I do think it's, it's, we, we recognize that there are a number of things we can manage um, in medically um, which don't require patients to come in. There are things that you have to bring patients in for uh, because you can't manage just by doing a video. You have to have an exam of the patient and lay your hands on the patient. Um, obviously, with counselling psychotherapy, I do think it creates that extra option because you obviously don't have to do physical examinations. Um, mm-hmm. And we would have had consultations where there were mainly mental health consultations. So they were good to manage over 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 Zoom and over uh, video and, and digital digital platforms. So um, I do think we, you know, and it's interesting, we were sort of thrown into the potential and it was probably the best thing happened to us because, you know, if we were still, if we haven't had COVID, we'd probably be still waiting to to look at the technology, the way administrative processes go so slowly. So I think that did raise an awareness of the importance. I I have to be careful though, because, and going back to that issue of inequalities, the middle class are more adept at using technologies and have more access to smartphones and technology. Mm-hmm. And then there are groups of people who we probably need to upscale. Um, I'm thinking more, not necessarily of um, people in deprivation, but I'm thinking of probably uh, older people, um, mm-hmm. uh, particularly so, I mean, and, and, and people who um, would have literacy issues, um, particularly because, you know, literacy issues can make um, it shouldn't make this, um, you know, digital inaccessible, but I think it can and it creates a fear of digital. So I do think we have to be careful that when we're promoting this, that we be aware that there are groups of people who will still find it hard to access um, and we need to find ways to get to them. So when you think about all those barriers that you've just cited there in regards to literacy, so we could sit here, I think, and talk about all of the barriers till the cows come home because they're very easy, I'd say, for both me and you to pick out at. But in regards to overcoming those barriers, if we were to sort of ideate for a few secs, what would like the stellar provision of digital therapies look like in the communities that you serve? What would be your ultimate vision for something like that? So I think the ultimate vision is, is, first of all, is obviously there's the low-hanging fruit, which is the people who are comfortable. And that's just about mm-hmm. making them aware of the opportunity um, and, uh, you know, enabling them to access it. I do think mm-hmm. um, for people who have literacy issues, uh, digital literacy or ordinary reading and writing literacy, I think we have to find some way. Now, if I was brainstorming, for example, um, having the ability to give someone a smartphone, for example, and show them how to use Mm -hmm. it in the surgery, or you get their smartphone and show them how to use it so we could connect with someone to say, listen, I have someone here who doesn't know how to use it, can I connect with you? And then they could take it on, because obviously GPs are busy. Um, Mm -hmm. Just to give you an example, an interesting one is uh, um, in London, 
they had homeless people are high risk of TB. And a number of them, when they develop TB, you have to supervise that they take their medication every day. And they send out a team of nurses every day. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is highly intensive. And a lot of times, the nurses wouldn't find the homeless person. So a friend of mine, Al Story, developed this initiative where he would give every homeless person a smartphone. And they had to ring mm-hmm. in every day and show themselves taking the phone. But they trained them in the smartphone, trained them how to take the medication. And even they had technology to identify that it was the right tablet. Like, it's incredible. Um, but everyone said, oh, don't do that. They'll throw away the phones or they'll sell them. They didn't. They held on to them. So I do think when you people understand the value of something, they will hold on to it. But if we could show them, so in other words, an older person comes into me, I say, listen, I think counseling would support. I could literally either take their smartphone or offer them a smartphone for a period of time. Say, take this, off you go. And um, I, I connect you with someone now. Connect you with someone. They go out to the corridor, talk to them. They'll tell you how to use it. And come back into me and we'll check you're okay with it. You know, something like that. Um, other ideas, calling to someone's house and showing them how to use it. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe helping us identify someone who in the family is tech savvy. So that we could get them to set up their grandparent or their parent. Now, that obviously creates confidentiality issues. But I think from where I'm in the areas of deprivation, where we're coming from, that's not of as course. big an issue as people may think, because I think people, mm-hmm. you know, often let each other know that they're going for counselling. So it's not as much a thing of shame. And I think it's really interesting that, you you know, you were talking about, I guess, people in the older age group. You know, we found in we did sort of like a naturalistic analysis of maybe about 20,000 people in the NHS who had used either SilverCloud or I think it was uh, Guided Self-Help, which is like bibliotherapy. And uh, the other one was like a, a well-being group. And I suppose out of all of those, you know, when you compare those three interventions and the people that went through, those in the 65 and older group, they found we found superior superiority of outcomes on the silver cloud end. Okay. So I think even that even that idea that, you know, those who are older, let's say, may be less inclined to use it. Yes, they may be less inclined, but when they do use it, they do achieve pretty good outcomes. And it's really interesting to think that people immediately go to, no, perhaps we should rethink. Of course, there would need to be wraparound strategies. And I think you said it really well there about, you know, going into the family home and, you know, trying to sit next to them on their couch and teach them how to use it, or even asking like a younger family member to help bridge that gap But, you know, digital really does when used effectively and it has all those wraparound processes because people sometimes think that if you just implement it, it'll work. And that's never the case. And you've just said it there. Yeah. And I think that's 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 the key is that, you know, I do agree with you. I think if people learn how to use it, they'd be very happy to use it. Like my mother learned how to use them, the, um, you know, the voice activated computer systems. And uh, once she did, she was very happy. But initially there's a fear. And it's just overcoming that fear and recognizing which groups are, most, are least likely to, most likely to face barriers and some are helping them to overcome those barriers. I think there will be a small proportion of people who will never handle having someone in front of a video and always want to see someone in person. Of course, of course. Um, and that's okay. But just uh, I do think a lot more people than we realize will be comfortable with, with um, digital approaches. I do think so too. And it's even the same with face-to-face therapy. You know, there are some presentations that just don't, that yeah. don't turn up to clinic and they, they don't like it. Like even for like a social, social anxiety presentation, like 
the thought of even just if you have somebody from a deprived area, like you just said there, who is in the north side of the city and you are asking them to go to counselling in like Fitzwilliam Square. And so not only are they socially anxious, but they have to take a bus, they have to walk through parts of town that they've never been to before. That's like not just barriers related to their condition, but also barriers related to society that they have to traipse through. So complex. (laughs) Yeah, and another idea as I'm thinking of it is that, you know, sometimes I think space is very important and where you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I've done research on this with homeless people and space is definitely a key determinant of behavior. So even, for example, in my own surgery, having a room free where someone can go in and we have a computer set up. So they come down mm-hmm. for their appointment, but it's on a digital thing in a different place. That actually could be attractive too. I suppose it would be interesting to look at that. Yeah, a lot of the earliest trials in ICBT, they did utilize that approach. Like when we're talking about interventions like uh, Beating the Blues, which was one of the precursor legacy kind of, uh, it was available on a CD-ROM. They used to give it to people to use in like community centers and libraries. Because when you think about the very early 2000s, when, you know, computers were too expensive, they were out of reach for the typical person. People would just go and they'd do their therapy in a library, in a community center, or as you're saying, in a room in their GP's office. Yeah, I think there could be there could be merit to that as well, because sometimes getting out of your house is, is a good part of the process. I, I know myself. I agree. Um, I tend to prefer to be in somewhere different when I'm doing something like that. So um, that's an option as well. Yeah. And then I guess in using SilverCloud and digital interventions like that, What's been the patient feedback in regards to how they've experienced it, how they've used it? Was it useful or was it not useful? People who have reported, they find it very useful. They really enjoyed it. They liked the fact that they could access it themselves. Um, and, and, you know, and it was easy to access. And there wasn't that fear of going off to another place. And they developed good relationships. I think you could develop as good a relationship digitally as you can uh, in person. Um just um, and in terms of migrants, I haven't many migrants who've used it, and one or two just, mm-hmm. um, and they found it a good service. Um, but um, I haven't many migrants, and I don't have any migrants from a foreign language who's used it, which would be interesting. I don't know. Do you have the option of translation available through SilverCloud? There are, yeah, there are definitely. You know, I'm working with some research sites who are using the program in Spanish. I think there may be a German translation knocking around, but you know, even in the UK we found that a lot of services do ask for, you know, in the the different Arabic languages, even in Turkish, like translation into, because there would be massive Turkish communities in London. Um, you know, they do ask for those sorts of translations. We haven't moved that way yet, but yeah. I, I think it's becoming, you know, even as the company expands, it's becoming more and more apparent that this is the, it's not just English, because once again, going back to the idea of access, that's a barrier in itself. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, I mean, I do GP consultation in Asylum Seeking Service, and um, mm-hmm. we would use telephone um, uh, translation a lot. So in a way, that's a form of a digital media. And in fact, we find it works very effectively. I, I remember when I first started using it, it felt strange and clunky, but when you get used to it, it actually works very well. And interestingly, the clients are all very comfortable with it because they've been used to working oh, yeah. with telephone translators. So I do think, you know, that option... Um, is worth developing because obviously they're a group who have needs, and uh, language barriers create uh, create you know, language barriers create barriers. Are barriers. Of course, and even you know, I'm learning through. I I do not speak Spanish. I do not profess to speak Spanish, but even with my work in the US, I'm finding that 
you know, the Spanish spoke on the West Coast is completely mm-hmm. different to the Spanish spoke on the East Coast and even then towards Central America okay. and South America. Very, very different group of people, yeah. different cultures, different backgrounds, different needs. It's quite easy to think, sure, don't you all speak Spanish? Yeah. No, that is not the case. And even when it comes to translation, we're learning after translating our one of our, uh, our depression program that, you know, even you don't think about this because you'd often hand translation to maybe one or two people, whereas you have a whole team of English speakers that would be working on yeah. the the whole Silver Cloud platform. And you think, oh gosh, the tone of this isn't what it needs to be. This is addressing someone in the wrong, uh, you know, using the polite form yeah. as opposed to the casual form. So there's lots of things to think about. But then again, I think that just speaks immediately to access. In Internet Delivered CBT, we often say that we increase access, but I'm not convinced that we do. And it's definitely one of the, you know, it's at the forefront of SilverCloud's mind in regards to how we can improve that. But it's something I think that the whole field and the companies yeah. that work in it and the academics that work in it, we need to acknowledge that, that we're kind of just replicating the issues that are present in psychotherapy and that have been present in psychotherapy and medical care, really. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, um, when I was back in the 90s, when I had this flood of, of asylum seekers come in and we had no interpretation available then. A lot of them came mm-hmm. from, you know, Congo or Rwanda, which are French speaking. So I resurrected my leaving such French. I was never, I never thought I was good <laughs> at French, speaking French. I wasn't good at writing French, but speaking, but I had to just speak it. So I became an expert in speaking present tense French. With a bad accent. <laughs> Amazing. But it was interesting, it worked. Uh, now, it's not the way you need translators. But what, what was particularly interesting was I have patients who've moved away, a good bit away from the practice and really want to stay with me because of that initial experience of being able to communicate with them in French. So they really, really appreciate the effort mm. and the fact that you break down that barrier. Um, and so, um, and then we also, interesting one, we had a lot of issues at our reception desk with, with asylum seekers. And then we did cultural awareness training, and that made a huge difference in terms of interacting. So you do need to implement these measures. They really appreciate it because not many people make that effort, actually. It's it's massive. What you've said there, and it's sort of near and dear to my heart, it's the whole implementation of internet-delivered interventions, the implementation science part of it, which funnily enough, isn't. A, it's not something I'm making up. It actually is a, a scientific field. Yeah. Um but I think, you know, when in, when interventions go into services like GP practices, uh, into migrant health services, into services for drug addiction and drug, drug abuse, you know, at the start, it'll look like a big thing to overcome. But similar to what you said, it takes a group of people resurrecting their Leaving Cert French book or thinking, how can I... Yeah adapt my practice to make sure that I'm serving, I'm using the tools that are available to me, like SilverCloud, to make sure they're, you know, achieving the ultimate intended benefit that they could possibly have. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. The way I tend to do is, you know, we have a a system which is like RME, it's the health system, and it's devised for Mm middle-class white people. And uh, so as a result, we have all these barriers to people from areas of deprivation, people who are homeless, people who are use drugs and then people who are migrants so we constantly have to be redesigning the system and Mm -hmm. the way silver cloud is a form of a redesign of a system um, and it offers an extra option um, which i think is hugely valuable so and we need to but recognize that we need to be constantly evolving as you say that particular initiative so obviously expanded to people with language issues literacy issues digital literacy issues, etc. Definitely. And I think 
one last question I wanted to ask was, um, so you're at the forefront, the 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 cold front, even the, like yeah. pushing these kinds of healthcare initiatives forward. But do you think are people generally aware of what's available to them, the services their GP offers, especially in the communities that you serve? Do you think that they're aware of like, oh, the, the service that Dr. Austin works at, you know, provides internet delivered CBT, or you can get, I don't know, a quick action STI test. Do you, do you think that people are aware of those sorts of services? I think people are probably more aware of the medical services you provide. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I go back to that issue that often counselling is perceived probably as a more middle class thing. And you'll often of get people to first of all ask for a referral for a psychiatrist or for medication. And you have to engage in a bit of explanation about the internet-based system. So, um, I mean, I do think there is a possibility of targeting a campaign in areas of deprivation towards changing that approach. Um, and that, you know, counselling services, including internet ones, um, are, you know, are a good first step in addressing mental health and often mean you don't have to end up with medication long term. So um, I do think that's, that is a sort of a mindset we need to address, but it's going to take a long time. Um, but I do think Silver Cloud, if you're thinking that is a way you could adopt to um, try and change that mindset through campaigns, you know, that, and I think it's also, I do think, you know, I'm always saying to people when I refer them for counselling, listen, counselling doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Counselling is a self-indulgence and it's mm-hmm. just, it helps you through a difficult period. And um, But it doesn't mean that you have a mental, you know, malformation or whatever it is. It just means you're going through a yeah. tough time, indulge yourself. And it's really, really nice. So thinking about those, I'm going to just probe a little bit further there. So thinking about those sorts of campaigns you were talking about, how do we, you know, let people know what mental health services are available to them, not just in their community, but in their in their underserved community? How do we let migrants know that, you know, you've just arrived, uh, here's an app that you can use that'll connect yeah. you with a coach, and that'll help you through the difficulties that you're currently experiencing? I think it's using networks that exist already. So, for example, there's different networks. For example, we found in the Roma community, one of the networks is the church. Mm -hmm. The church could be a good network in general. um, And obviously there's different churches or different religions. So there's the mosque as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in terms of migrants, there's, there's specific networks you need to use. In terms of people deprivation, it's probably... They read different newspapers, they read, they watch different programs, not always, but often. So it's been able to get those advertising outlets. And also, I think, framing the advertisements in terms of suitability, because you want to get the advertisements to people with literacy issues as well. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you need to make them literacy proofed. Um, um, I'm not a marketing expert, but I would have thought... um, there are people who know how you know how you get into the different audiences, um, because there are different ways. You know, they 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 do often read different newspapers or different, um, not always, but often, and 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 different networks of TVs, etc. Like True Sport is a classic example. I, I there's a great initiative yeah. in um, our, you know the foot club, foot clubs, where they get elderly um, people um, to go walking around the pitch. You know, to do exercise mm-hmm. around the pitch. So you know, that's that's a way of getting health. The GAA, I think, is a fantastic organisation that is a way of promoting mental health. Um, yeah, there's. I think you need to think broadly when you're thinking how do you get these messages out. 
exactly because I think it's far it's far less uh, we need to start thinking in terms of communities and less so as in targeted individuals I think that's really important not just for mental health care communities so Austin I just want to say thanks for no taking problem. the time to come today look forward to using the services continuously yeah thank you to my guest today Dr Austin O'Carroll the work that he's been doing is so important and making such a valuable impact to the community if you want to know about any of the services that SilverCloud by Amwell offers in providing support for mental health, you can find all the details on our website. You can also hear more conversations surrounding digital mental health and listen back to all the previous episodes of CB Talks Online. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode in this series, please rate and review CB Talks so we can help others discover it too. I'll be back next time looking at another way in which digital technologies are involved in mental health. Goodbye.